This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday edition of Jonathan Taylor Thomas Talks Major League Baseball, the Braves signed Marcel Ozuna edition for more than a year. Um, John Taylor is here as he is every Tuesday. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, great week for, for Braves country. Great week. Um uh, it, it, it was good, but we'll we'll get into that. Um, <laughs> it, there's been a lot of news, and there's been a lot of lot of stuff. It's also just like unbearably cold. You're in like the winter wonderland. I know Fisher is enjoying um, the the Manhattan snowstorm. Correct? Yeah, I mean he loves the snow. Uh, it's fun because sometimes I lose track of him in the snow. But mm. yeah, it's it's been cold up here. We've, we've got a little bit of little light precipitation today. It's going to stay cold through the week. We might get some more snow. It's we're we're getting a snowier winter than than I expected up here. Have you ever been concerned about losing Fisher in the snow? Because they uh, one, they, one they blend in. One, one time a couple of years ago, I, I almost lost him, but luckily it was in a small dog park, so it wasn't there. Like there were was a whole lot of places he could go, but it was just, I looked around and I was like, oh, there's snow everywhere, and I don't see the dog. <laughs> and then he turned around, and I saw his face. I was like, ah, oh, there you go. Oh, that's funny. That's good. Um, well, don't forget, folks, you can check out the Chase Thomas Podcast on chasethomaspodcast.com or all the other Blue Wire shows on bluewirepods.com. Um, Fisher the dog would love nothing more as he's snuggling up in the cold than to see you leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. So do that if you have not already. Um, John, Major League Baseball and the Players Association are coming to all kinds of new agreements that unfortunately still do not include a universal DH. Don't understand what the holdup is there, but uh, health and pr- health protocols have been agreed to uh, double headers being seven innings is part of it. Um, having someone start off on second in extra innings is still going to be part of it. Uh, what do you make of all the, all the, I guess not new rules, but uh, the returning ones from a season ago? Yeah, I was going to say that it looks like they're keeping things mostly intact, which makes sense. I mean, the from what I, the sense I've gotten is that like players and managers seem to be okay at the very least with continuing seven inning the double headers and the runner on second and extras rule so long as it's you know for pandemic reasons. Um, I can't imagine that sticks once we go back to actual normal, but I, I don't really have any issue with them. Like, I think the runner on second rule is still kind of just goofy, but it doesn't. You know, I, I don't I don't think it makes enough of a difference to get rid of it necessarily. I don't know. I, I really don't have much of an opinion on that one beyond how like, oh cool, there's a runner on second now. And it did seem to have it did seem to do at least part of the job that it was supposed to last year. I mean the longest extra inning game we had last year was thirteen innings. Um so I, I guess it shortened things. I mean I I wouldn't know without being like having done a 
comprehensive study of like you know average game length but whatever the interesting one to me is that you mentioned that you know the universal dh is still not a thing which the reason it's not is because the league is for for whatever reason thinks that the universal dh is important enough they can exchange the expanded playoffs for it and apparently they have not gotten the memo that the union is not that stupid um the other funny part about that is that the expanded dh was part of the health and safety protocols last year you know the idea being let's you know I'm actually not sure why that was part of the extent of part of the health and safety protocols, but it was, and now it's not because the league again thinks that it has that the expanded DH is some form of leverage it can use, which I find kind of strange because again the union doesn't care that much about at most 15 extra jobs, the great majority of which will either be filled internally or with some you know quadruple A bat because teams aren't really going to go like there are there aren't that many Nelson Cruises out there you know who are who are DH only guys. Who without the who are going to lose uh, any kind of value without the universal DH? There really only are like maybe ten of those guys in the entire league. So the union is, is just not going to bite on that. Uh, the other interesting thing I thought about or saw about the rules was the idea that Major League Baseball is not going to force its players to be vaccinated, which is just crazy to me. Uh, I know there are all kinds of ethical, moral, and optical issues about having Major League Baseball players and personnel jump the line so to speak and get vaccines when so much of the country is struggling to get them even the groups that are supposed to have gotten them by now you know the elderly people with comorbidities underlying illnesses health care workers frontline workers etc you know and especially in a country with the where no one has enough doses but at the same time like the whole idea of a vaccine is everyone gets it because the more people that get it the more useful the more valuable it is everyone needs to be vaccinated and I especially worry that if you leave it in the hands of Major League Baseball players who, to put it lightly, are not the most educated bunch of people, you're not going to get in. You, it just it needs to be a it almost it almost feels like it needs to be mandatory. It needs to be a requirement of a season happening that everybody involved gets vaccinated, not just the players, not just the managers, not just the coaches, everyone involved, like clubhouse staff, uh, front, like team staff people working in the stadiums everyone needs Philly to the get fanatic. it otherwise give it to, give it to them with a giant oversized novelty syringe if that's what it takes. <laughs> otherwise Green man no otherwise this is not safe you know and, and you could argue that you know major league baseball doesn't really care about how safe this is they just want to have a season but the safest way to do this absent doing another doing a bubble which we've already seen major league baseball is just not going to do is to get everyone vaccinated as soon as possible. And it's it just confused. I mean, I understand, again, there are moral issues, there are ethical issues, and I'm sure MLB does not want the optics of being the first major professional sports league in North America to essentially to cut the line. Uh, that's just not going to win them any fans. But at the same time, I mean, you can make the argument, and I think should, that vaccines are, the whole point of a vaccine is that everybody gets it, and that the only way we're getting a safe, normal baseball season is if everyone involved is vaccinated as soon as possible. And it should not be left up to players because, I, again, I do not trust that enough of those players are educated enough or, I guess, even trustworthy enough, given how conservative some of them tend to lean, to get that va- not only to get that vaccine on their own, but also what, what is the process for those guys even getting the vaccine? Who's handling that? The team? The league? Are they just supposed to figure it out on their own? Is it up to whatever state and city they live in? That's just asking for problems 
in a way that I don't really think MLB under like I, again I get it optics but like if you want a season that functions and a season that's safe you got to get vaccine you got to get shots in arms sooner rather than later and it should not be left up to players it should be a league wide mandate that unless you get vaccinated and the league will help you with that you can't play that's just how, that just how that has to be how it is especially when you consider that if spring training does go on as planned that players will be going to arguably the two most wrecked states in the entire country, the two worst, most dangerous states in the entire country when it comes to COVID infection rates in Florida and Arizona. It's almost like inhumane to send people into that. Not to, of course, not just the players, because there's always more people in that involved, but the team staff and the coaching staff and the everyone, everyone involved in that, especially considering that I have to imagine that at the very least in Florida, if not Arizona, they are going to let fans in the stands which is just going to create a, a, a giant petri dish of contamination and infection that the league just doesn't really seem to have a plan for, it feels like. Yeah, I I don't know. I think this is going to be a mess. You're seeing what it's doing with NHL and the NBA, and like it, they got time. That's the one thing they do have on their side is the NFL just got so lucky with all of this, really. Um, the outdoor stuff, being um, just the, well, the NFL limited amount of games. Just- the NFL just clearly put its head down and decided nothing is stopping the season. Like, it doesn't matter how many people get sick, how many yeah. teams can't play, how much reorganization of the schedule we have to do, we will not stop the season. Because it's the NFL and that's how they do things. I mean, you are right that only having to play one game a week makes it a lot easier to kind of rotate things around as opposed to baseball, where it's, you know, six games, five, six games a week. You know, and if you miss one, you got to make it up. But... I mean, I think like I, I think the the point you made with the NBA and NHL is, is, is the right one. Is like those those leagues are barely getting through this, and they have far fewer people involved, and for the most part, are I, I mean, they're obviously they're not bubbling either. But th- that's what we're seeing. Like a league playing sports without a bubble is just not realistic. But for baseball, a bubble is not realistic. So the only real safe way to do this is get folks vaccinated and. I mean, like, you're right. They do have time on their side. The season's not going to start till April. That's time for at least infection rates, ideally, to start going down in places, for more people to get vaccinated, for these players and, and teams to get vaccines. But Also to see what this Ultimately, public sentiment is, right? Like, I think they're still trying to figure out when the right time is to get them vaccinated. Like, when there will not well, be nothing, a... Nothing about what baseball is doing seems like it's as any. Like, why do we still not... Like, I understand, like, MLB wants expanded playoffs the lead, the union wants something in exchange for it you know because it's it's that's something that has to be negotiated through the cba but we are what two weeks away from the start of spring training less and we still do not know what the playoff format is going to be that, that's, that's ridiculous good. but at a certain at a certain point you just need to decide regardless of what like at a certain point the league just needs to say you would hope anyway okay we'll talk expanded playoffs in the cba negotiations for now, our focus needs to be on how do we get this season going. We're going to go back to the old playoff format for at least this year, and then we'll talk it over, to, talk it over in the winter. But the league is so stubborn and so greedy about this that they're just going to – I think that this is going to play out like it did last year. We're just going to get up to opening day, and that's when they're going to announce, oh, by the way, there's expanded playoffs again. It's just silly, and, that, and that's kind of the thing. Like For, all the, for, for any health and safety protocols you can come up with, like uh, contact tracing sensors and – you know, we're going to bring back, you know, we're going to do seven and double headers. Again. It doesn't really matter if the ultimate, like, situation is just not safe. And it's just hard to see how it's safe when, you know, when you look at what's happened with the NBA and the NHL, and they're barely getting through it. 
You know, there was a point, I think, last week where it really seemed like the NHL was going to have to stop the season. Um, I don't follow hockey all that closely, but that's the sense I got, was that there were simply too many uh, infections, too many outbreaks, and too much transmission to keep playing at anything remotely approaching a safe level. Yeah. Not great, Bob. Um, Yadier Molina back with the St. Louis Cardinals. Do you like this? Sure. I mean, it makes sense. I don't think that there was another better option for them. Um, depending what, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent familiar with the Cardinals roster. I'm just going to assume whatever catcher they have who was backing up, uh, Molina, which is Andrew. Knisner, Knisner, Knisner. That's a hell of a name. Um, regardless, like, I don't think the Cardinals necessarily wanted to do that if they didn't have to. Um, and once they brought in Nolan Arenado and brought back Adam Wainwright, it kind of just made sense to bring Molina back. Just kind of, cause, I mean, I think right now this is the best team in the, in the NL Central, mostly by default, but also because they're one of the few teams, they're the, like pretty much the only team in the division that's tried. So once you've kind of decided you're going to try, then yeah, you, you got to, like bringing back Molina just makes sense. Um, I know he's obviously not the player he once was, um, but at the same time, he is a valuable presence to them. He is a valuable clubhouse presence. He is a valuable pitch calling presence. He is a valuable presence for the starters. And I think he's valuable for the fans, too, because I really do think there would have been a great degree of unhappiness if he had walked. And I know that Molina's relationship with the team has been kind of not the best over the last couple of years. I have to imagine this is probably it for him one way or the other, that because it's only a one-year deal that regard that one either next year he retires or that's it for him in St. Louis unless he just wants to do one year deals for the rest of time but I, I think it was a move they had to make if only because I mean this is the like I said this is the favorite to win the NL Central you might as well bring bring the you know you might as well bring in the best option you have and since the Cardinals were never realistic players I don't think for JT Realmuto or James McCann or any of the other good free agent catchers and I think those might have been the only two Molina was pretty much their only real option and i think it probably helped too that they were able to free up some money by getting by moving dexter fowler which also helps because and i know we'll 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 get to the cardinals eventually i imagine but you know that outfield kind of needed some thinning out and and fowler is definitely the kind of the most logical guy to go is probably the worst player in that group and also the guy who they could you know at least save a little bit of money by by moving yeah um remember uh shohi otani do you remember that guy uh vaguely yes I vaguely remember him too, um, but he is back with the Angels two-year deal. Um, is it ever gonna all come together? There is it all like what? What? What is I gonna wish, happen? I hope. I really hope, but the the concern you have to have is that he can't stay healthy if he does both of these jobs. Yeah. Like the concern is that he is not capable of staying healthy as a pitcher and a hitter, and inevitably at some point they're going to have to choose because I mean Otani. Obviously, he had the Tommy John surgery. He looked very bad last year as a starter before he hurt his arm again. Um, He managed all of one and two-thirds innings and walked eight guys. It's not what you want. Velocity was completely shot by the last time he came off the mound. Didn't pitch again, obviously, for the rest of the season. Um, We will see in spring training, I guess, how he looks pitching-wise. I haven't kept up enough to see what the deal is with uh, it was a flexor strain last year, so he should be good to go for for this for this spring. But I do think at, at a certain point, like if it doesn't happen this year, if he can't stay healthy again, then I do think we're probably at a point where he just 
is going to be a, a DH only, which is really a shame. Like, you know, obviously he was terrible last year as a hitter, and I imagine that was part of that was because he was hurt. Um, he's obviously great as a hitter before that, but it would really be a shame if, if we lost out on his two-way skills because, man, he is really special. But I don't know. It, it's just going to depend on how healthy he is, how healthy he can be. Um, you know, that, that's, really, that's really the most important thing. If he, if he comes out in spring training and just doesn't look right as a pitcher, then I think it's – or if, if he spends the season struggling as a pitcher again – and I think the Angels are going to have to make that hard choice and be like, no, you are, you are a hitter now because you are simply too valuable to us and too good as a hitter too. Especially because the other thing is you don't want him, you don't want him playing at all injured. And if him pitching is just going to get him injured all the time, and then you say, screw it, you're, in, you're, you're a designated hitter now. Maybe we can work on, on having you become an outfielder or learning first base. But you know, for the time being, you were a hitter. I hope it doesn't come to that. I want to see Otani pitch again. I want to see him healthy. I want to see him do crazy two-way things. But it's definitely that definitely seems to be the direction we're heading here. Is that if, is that he's just not going to be healthy enough to pitch on a regular basis? I hope I'm wrong. I really do. Yeah, but we we shall see. Um, Jonathan Scope got all the money from the Detroit Tigers. Was that uh, what you were expecting for Jonathan Scope? Um, yeah, if only because team, I mean, like the Tigers have been very much like, like the Royals, I think that same kind of mentality of, you know, we may, we're not going to be good, but let's at least sign some competent players and scope definitely fits that, that kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He definitely fits in that regard. You know, he's, if it weren't for scope, I mean, who's playing second base for them? Like the, the recently signed, you know, Greg Garcia, like. Are you putting Isaac Marcus Parady Giles. there? Like, yeah, like, okay, that's a little. <laughs> we're not go that far, but like, I mean, that's a team that didn't really have an option at second base. Um, you know, aside from, I don't, I don't even know who. I'm just looking over, just quickly looking at the the Tigers roster, not really seeing anything that would have kind of worked there either way. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't matter. The Tigers are still going to be bad, but you you still need confidence because otherwise. And not even confidence in that sense of like, oh, we're trying, but confidence in that sense of we don't really have another option here, and it's going to be detrimental to the team if we have to stick either some minor leaguer or some dude who doesn't know how to play second or isn't good at playing second or whatever. Let's just get a guy who can competently play the position, can put together two or three decent at-bats a game, and at least give us something there so we don't have to rush someone or put someone in that position where they're not meant to be. And I think, like I said, the Royals have done something similar in signing guys like Carlos Santana and Mike Miner. And the other part of this, like, you know, if those guys are, have good first halves, of the, first halves of the season, you can flip them if you want. You know, maybe at some point during at the deadline, there will be a team out there that, I mean, I don't think Jonathan Scope is the kind of guy you trade for. It's like, a, this is the missing piece that's going to make us contenders or that is going to make us World Series favorites. But I can certainly see a team that maybe needs a backup middle infielder or that could use a, a bat off the bench or who lost their second baseman and don't really have like a, another internal option. Maybe just, you know, you flip a minor prospect for scope just to kind of fill a void because that's, that's kind of what Jonathan scope just is at this point. He's a guy who fills a hole and it, it definitely at least makes sense to me that, that Detroit would want to re up with him. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Trevor Bauer. He did not end up in New York. Uh, shout out to Bob Nightingale and uh, that day long drama. Great stuff there, folks. That is the content we're here for. Um, no, he ends up in Los Angeles. Uh, do you. <laughs> 
it's so hard to figure this out because like it's it's the Dodgers and the arms race between them and the Padres. And if you're the Padres, you're like, oh, you like, wait, <laughs> come on. Like we did so much this offseason and the Dodgers just sweep in and take Trevor Bauer. Um, what do you what do you make of Trevor Bauer's fit in Los Angeles? It's a weird fit because there's definitely, you know, there, there are a handful of teams where you kind of looked at their rotations are like, they don't really need any help. And the Dodgers were definitely one of them. I mean, they already had Kershaw. They already had Bueller. David Price was going to come back. Julio Arias was there. Tony Gonsolin, Dustin May. I mean, I think I would rather, certainly you would rather have 30 starts out of Trevor Bauer than 30 starts out of Tony Gonsolin and whoever else was going to fill in that void. Um, at the back of the rotation, so that makes sense. You know, you're making a, you know, you're you're just you're eliminating kind of that bottom level of risk, especially when you consider that, you know, that the gap. I think I don't think this is a move the Dodgers would have made without the Padres doing what they did, because they I think they realized the gap between these two teams is effectively zero. We need to reopen that gap because if there is no expanded playoffs, and even if there is, but especially if there's no expanded playoffs. Second place in that division is going to the wild card game, and that's not where you want to be. You know, you the priority is winning the division, and the Dodgers understand that. And signing Trevor Bauer is as much about putting a boot on the Padres' neck and keeping them from winning the division as it is about what Trevor Bauer adds individually to the Dodgers. And obviously what he adds individually is a lot of depth. He, he adds, obviously, the guy who won the Cy Young last year. He's a very good pitcher in his own right, or so we believe. Um Certainly you got to have your questions about how he fits on that team because he just seems to be a huge jerk in every sense. And maybe that matters more off the field where he just acts like an entitled, petulant child all the time online as opposed to in a clubhouse. I've actually heard he's not a terrible clubhouse guy. He's just kind of his own weird thing. Regardless, so at least, you know, leaving that nasty part of Bauer aside because really there's there's no real debating it. You either, you either find him a, just a kind of – unpleasant ass or you don't and nothing's really going to change your mind on that one but what he adds for the Dodgers is certainly I think he he reestablishes them as the favorite in that division uh Fangraphs just put out its playoff odds for 2021 they're they're still a little wonky I think there's some strength of schedule stuff that needs to be worked out but right now the Dodgers are favored to win the division 59.5 percent of the time they have a two-win advantage on the Padres that's probably Bauer by himself so that, that's kind of, I think, the calculation that the Dodgers made is that this is the one player, that was the one player left on the market who was by himself a two or more win upgrade. And that, that may be the difference between first and second place in the NL West. So I think it makes sense for the Dodgers. I do just think it's interesting to see what they're going to do next. Um, I'm kind of curious to see if Price sticks around. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets salary dumped somewhere on a team that could use a starter and maybe wants to buy a prospect in the process. But um, if nothing else, the Dodgers are now deeper and better, and certainly that's that's definitely a team that needed to get deeper and better. Obviously, so absolutely, absolutely. Um, last thing, the the crown jewel of our conversation today, Marcel Ozuna is back to protect. Um, Freddie Freeman in the middle of the Atlanta Braves order. Um, <laughs> this was good. This was a surprise. I really thought he wasn't coming back. I thought the longer this was going on, the more likely it was that he was going to take a longer deal than the Braves were willing to offer him and the Braves to a four-year deal with Ozuna. Um, now, people are going a little bit overboard <laughs> where it's like, see, we did it. No, 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 no. 
You still got to keep doing things. The Dodgers and the Padres are still there. The Cardinals still just traded for Nolan Arenado. The Mets are still spending a bunch of money. The Nationals are, have been pretty busy this offseason. The Mets have been busy this offseason, and they're coming with their billion-dollar owner. Um, if they can just get out of their own way. So it's the Mets, they're probably not. Um, I like it. Like Obviously, this is great. I wasn't ready for Christian Pache to be an everyday player. Um, the Braves, like, I still don't like the fact that Ender and Ciarte still figures to be a strong part of this outfield. Um, I think they need another one. I think they need to go after somebody else. I don't think it should just be Ozuna. Um, but Hey, it's another thing they needed to do. That was obvious. They needed to do this thing and they did the obvious thing. So kudos to Alex Anthopoulos and ownership for doing the obvious good thing here. Yeah. And that's really what it, Excuse me. That's really what it boils down to, to me. For is that coming into this, Atlanta had, or before re-signing Ozuna, Atlanta had one outfielder could count on in Acuna, one outfielder to give some rope to in Pache, and then it's just a total question mark in left field, which was either going to be in Ciarte or or maybe they were going to rush Drew Waters or you know just kind of figure it out on the fly. And you can't really go into a season as a title contender with one dependable outfielder. Now Pache is still going to play because he's the best center fielder on the roster. He's, you know, and I think it, it is, it, it is, um, I think the Braves need to see what they have in him, especially because, you know, him at the number nine spot in center, like his glove alone will make him a useful regular, whatever he gives you offensively is gravy. And you do need to figure out what that is. I think what's important for Atlanta now is, okay, where else, if anywhere else, can you upgrade? And to me, the obvious spot is third base. Yes. And to me, the obvious pairing is Justin Turner. Because this is, as much as this is a team that is built to win in the future, this is a team that's built to win right now, too. Because none of these guys are getting any younger. Certainly your best player in Freddie Freeman, well, your best hitter, I guess, and Freddie Freeman is, is now you know going to be 32 at some point this season. Why, like, Justin Turner's not going to cost you very much. His market seems to be very narrow. It's either go back to L.A., and I, I think Milwaukee was also in the rumors at one point, but Milwaukee has no interest in spending and probably only wants Turner if he's willing to accept a one-year pillow contract before trying again next year, which I don't really know why Turner would do that. You could probably get him on a decent two- or three-year deal at this point. Does that slow down what you do with Austin Riley? Maybe. Has Austin Riley really shown that he is Well, the they need to move on from that. That ship has sailed. We have a year and a half now. We have a year and a half. It's not – that's not and a that, thing. And that's the thing. Like, Austin Riley hasn't really shown you anything in that time other than he can hit a mistake a really long way. You know, why not why not upgrade why not up the floor there and give yourself a lineup that really top to bottom is probably one of the best in the entire league. You know, especially and Turner defensively too is probably better than Riley. I, I think that makes sense because otherwise, you know, looking at maybe you can add a better bench piece than a Hero Adrianza. Maybe you can get a better fourth outfielder than Ciarte, although actually I don't really mind him as a fourth outfielder. He, all he's there to do as a fourth outfielder is play uh, play the last couple innings in place of Ozuna and left. Maybe pinch run every now and then, lay down a bunt. You're not going to be asking Ender NCRT to do too much, and all the things you're going to be asking him to do, he can still actually do pretty well. He just can't hit for power anymore. But otherwise, like maybe you get a better fifth starter than Kyle Wright, but I can also understand kind of just accepting that as a thing and seeing if there's anything left, or not anything left, but if there's, you know, you, you also you want to see what you have in some of these guys too. Like, you know, give Kyle Wright the chance before you cut bait, so to speak. And maybe the other thing would be you add some help in the bullpen, but there are a lot of arms already there anyway. To the point where I can see Atlanta being like, we'll figure it out, and we have enough young pitching in the system that if one of those guys in the bullpen doesn't really work out, okay, well, here's Bryce Wilson, here's Tuki Toussaint, yeah. here's Waskari Noah, here's 
you know, here's 18 million other guys, all of whom are perfectly fine relievers. I did not realize the Braves had Carl Edwards Jr. That's cool. Um, I, what surprises me, I think, is about Ozuna is that no other team, and I, I, I figured his market was going to be American League teams only, um, and that he was going to end up basically being kind of like a, in a J.D. Martinez situation where he had to go to a team that really needed help at designated hitter. Granted, I think Nelson Cruz signing with the Twins probably took his best option off the table. Um, I don't know off the top of my head what other teams could use DH help, but certainly it doesn't really seem like there are too many teams willing to invest in a guy who two years from now is going to be a DH all the time. He's, he already shouldn't be out in the field, but definitely the older he gets, the less that's going to be a thing you want to live with. And certainly the lack of the universal DH killed you know half his market right off the get-go. I do think Atlanta believes, and I think it's a good belief, that there will be a universal DH at some point, that that is just going to be a thing that gets added in the next CBA, if not before this season. But certainly, regardless of where he plays, I think it's a, it's a, it's a risk you have to take because this offense, especially this outfield without him, was just not going to be good enough, really. And like you said, the rest of the NL East has honestly been trying. You know, The Phillies brought back who they need to bring back. The Mets have gotten better. Uh, the Nationals have not gotten worse. You know, that's probably fair to say. The Marlins are spunky and surprisingly competitive. Um, you know, it, it's just a question of, you know, now what, what do you do next? And I really do like Turner as an idea. I, I don't think he's going to end up there. I think he goes back to L.A. eventually just because, you know, I, I think that's just his best fit. But if I'm, if I'm the Braves, I'm definitely keeping an eye on not just what's available free agency-wise third ba- at third base, which I think is just Turner, but, you know, maybe maybe there's room to get involved in a Chris Bryant discussion. You know, it's, it's weird we have not really heard any chatter on that for the majority of the offseason, especially after the Cubs more or less threw away you Darvish. Yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe Chicago is just going to hold on to Bryant until the deadline and try to see, you know, in a weak division what they can do. But definitely if the Cubs are out of it at the deadline especially, I think we're going to see Atlanta being one of those teams, depending on how Riley plays, that's going to be in on any potential Chris Bryant sweepstakes. I agree. Um, the also, not, to, not to mention just how deeply handsome the left side of Atlanta's infield would be between Dansby Swanson and Chris Bryant. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That was a pretty, pretty infield. Anyway. <laughs> oh, man. That, that, is, uh, that is true. Um, the Houston Astros, uh, America's team, if you will, um, John Taylor, they had a losing record and, of course, being the Astros, went on a deep – playoff run last year to the to just no one's amusement um i'm going to go and guess uh, outside of asteroids fans but they go on a run and for back-to-back off seasons they're losing important key cogs they developed and uh helped turn them into the juggernaut that they are and uh i i don't know what to make of this because i think we're just like becoming accustomed to these guys just walking now and like we'll probably see it with correa soon too but what does losing George Springer mean for the Astros? Because he was their best hitter last year, and he's just gone. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing, you look at the, the Astros lineup, and honestly, they can survive losing Springer. I think 
the most important thing is going to be how is Jose Altuve because he's a new leadoff hitter. I know we're going to we're going to talk about Altuve a little bit, but otherwise, I mean, you look at that lineup; it's it's pretty deep. Like they still have obviously Altuve, and if he's good, then that helps. But beyond that, obviously, they have Bregman, they have Correa, they have a uh, full season ideally of Jordan Alvarez, which should really help. They brought back Michael Brantley. Kyle Tucker's a very good young hitter. Yuli Gurriel's a good hitter. Uh, it's really just the bottom of that lineup right now between Jason Castro, a catcher, who is fine, and the current option at center field, which is Miles Straw. My, if I'm the Astros, I'm probably dropping a line to Jackie Bradley Jr.'s agent and asking what he's looking for because I think he would make a ton of sense, uh, especially given that Brantley is not a great outfielder, and I think Tucker is fine, but Bradley's probably the best, one of the best defensive center, center fielders in baseball. Um, he can handle himself with a bat at the bottom of the lineup. He's a perfectly good option there. I think he would make a lot of he may make a lot of sense for a lot of teams, but it especially makes sense for Houston. Otherwise, though, I think Springer is a loss they could survive, if only because of the rest of the lineup is pretty strong without him. I don't think he can go in Miles Straw. Like he's not good. Miles no, I, I, I. That's the thing. But I mean, if you do, if that's what it ends up being, you can survive that. And I think probably the idea in Houston too is let's see how this goes because we are probably the division favorite right now. We have a little bit of wiggle room because the A's have actively gotten worse and the Angels are still the Angels. So we can live with this. And if it doesn't work out, if Straw's not hitting or whatever else, you know, we can keep an eye on the trade market. We can see what else is out there. I think the only problem is you don't really have internal options if Straw struggles. Because um, unless you really want to play Abraham Toro, who I don't think is an outfielder, I think he's just an infielder, or Steven Souza? Really? Okay. Um, I, there's not really a whole lot of other options here you can turn to. So it's risky, I think, but it's also a risk I think you can live with. Um, at least if if the if you're the Astros and you feel like okay, we're you know between Brantley and the other smaller additions we made, we are tapped out financially. Um, we'll see what comes you know in the trade market. Um, what do we do with Altuve's 2020 season? I don't know. It, it, it was just looking at the numbers. It's weird. It, the, the biggest issue for him is just he just stopped hitting fastballs, which um, the wags among. <laughs> I wonder if Houston hitters had a way to help identify oh. fastballs. Interesting. <laughs> okay, tell me more. Because the weird thing is, you look at Altuve's numbers, and he's never been like an exit velocity hard hit guy. You know, those numbers haven't really changed. His rate stats haven't really changed. He, he struck out a little more last year, but that's almost entirely because he struggled so badly with fastballs. And But nothing else really changed all that much in his approach or his results. It really is just he just couldn't hit fastballs. And there are two ways of looking at that. One is that Altuve is now uh, he's going to be 31 years old. He was, again, a smaller dude whose entire game was predicated on contact and speed. Not a guy who ages super well, you know, even though he's actually been a, he's actually held consistent in terms of uh, sprint speed at least. But you always kind of felt like there is probably at some point a cliff coming with regards to his production because of, you know, who he is. He's a little dude who has injury problems. He's kind of like Dustin Pedroia in that regard, but less scrappy. The other more nefarious read is, well, that's what happens when you don't have someone signaling to you in advance that, hey, fastball coming, curveball coming, whatever else coming. Now, I'm willing to give Altuve the benefit of the doubt that last year with the combination of everything that happened with the Astros in the offseason, plus the delayed start to the season, plus the pandemic, 
plus whatever he was dealing with personally. I know he was he was briefly injured at one point with a knee injury, and he had a leg injury suffered during the summer camp that I, I wonder if it ever really fully felt right for him. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that with a full season, with a full off season, and especially one of the things I, I forgot to mention, the health and safety protocols, is they're going to bring video, in, in-game video back just with catcher signals blurred. Um, whether or not he's a guy, too, who kind of needs a guy like a J.D. Martinez or like, a, like I guess, other guys on that Astros team who really like looking at in, in-game video to try to see, like, okay, what's going on here? What am I doing? What's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I definitely is, there definitely is a concern there that, like, if this is just something where it's like he's just lost the ability to hit fastballs with authority, there's not a whole lot else to Altuve's game that he's bringing in the positive side. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest, uh, I hate this phrase, but one of the biggest X factors for Houston in 2021 is what are they going to get out of Altuve? Because, like I said, with Springer gone, right now he's the projected leadoff hitter. And I'm not really sure who else you plug into that spot if he's not really working out. Maybe Brantley, maybe Gurriel, who's, again, a super contact-oriented guy, but who's definitely not a patient hitter. Uh, Brantley would probably make a decent amount of sense. I don't know that you want Bregman leading off. I, I kind of like him hitting second. But that's the other thing, too, is if is not working at leadoff, you're wasting Bregman in the number two spot. So it really just creates this compounding lineup effect that just dominoes down, which is everybody gets dinged by that, obviously. So that's going to be really important to find out is what exactly happened to Altuve last year. Was that inability to hit fastballs just a combination of all the various weirdnesses of the 2020 season? Or is it really something as simple as, well, no one was banging on a trash can no more, so that's why you couldn't hit him? Yeah. Because the other thing, too, there is that, like, like with Miles Straw, there are no real internal options for if Jose Altuve is not playing well. You know, you don't really want to be starting a lead Miss Diaz every day. And Houston's prospect, Houston's farm system is is pitching is pitching heavy. You know there aren't a, there aren't a ton of good position player options. I mean their best position player prospect right now is probably Freitas Nova, and he's never gotten above high A ball. So you know that's not a guy you can count on if Altuve struggles. There's really not a whole lot there. Again, it's kind of a situation where it's like if Altuve struggles, you're you're going to need to find something from outside the organization to fix that. Yeah. Um, Zach Greinke is 36. 36. My favorite pitcher outside of Tim Lincecum for the last 20 years. I uh, one of my first sports articles I ever wrote. John Taylor. Would you like to? Would you like to hear how old I am, John? Uh, you're not as old as I am, so I'm gonna guess 30. Okay, I I do turn 30 in two months. Um, there you go. Zach Greinke was a ace for the. The uh, Kansas City Royals years and years ago now. Um, Long time ago. Jeff Rancorb, once upon a time, graced the cover of Sports Illustrated The Natural. I wrote about why the Braves should get out ahead of Francor's fall and trade for Zach Greinke, who I thought was just going to be an ace for a long time and just uh, sell high on Francor. But Francor being look like Francor literally went to my high school. Um, did not go over well in my area. Uh, John did did not go did not go over well. Um, one of these players is still playing baseball. The other has been gone for a very long time. Not to say that I won this uh, idea, but hey, you know the jury's still out. I guess you're, you're taking a victory lap. I am taking a victory lap. Grinky had a two point eight zero FIP last year for the Astros. Um, everyone's leaving there. Cole's gone. Um, McCullers Junior's there, but like the rotation suddenly just kind of like hmm. Because Zach Grinke is kind of like the anchor still. Uh, 
when do you think he's going to start slipping? Or do you think we still got some time? I have no idea. I mean, the dude throws like 84 miles an hour. He's still <laughs> good. I don't know what you do at a certain point with that. Like, I think the, the, the aging curve and the decline for a guy like Granky is definitely different than it would be for other guys because of the fact, like, and, you know, it's the reality. He is so smart at what he does that he can live on lower velocity simply because he can just change things up sequencing-wise because his arsenal is so effective even without that velocity. I mean, I don't think you want to bet that he's going to keep doing this forever unless he learns a knuckleball. And boy, do I really, now that I've thought about it, I really want to see Zach Greinke throw a knuckleball. I bet he could do it. But I don't think there's any real reason to his, well, I guess there are two ways of looking at it. One is, based off what we know about Zach Greinke and what he throws and how he throws, and that he doesn't need velocity to be successful, you can argue he can probably do this indefinitely. The other side of it is he's, what, 38 now, 36, somewhere in that line? Of, 37. That line, 37. Again, like you, you never know when the fall-off's going to come, and the light, and it becomes likelier and likelier the older a guy gets, to the point where you kind of have to worry. It's like, okay, he's 37. How long can we count on this? And I don't think anyone knows the answer, and I'm sure if you were to ask Ranky, he would probably just stare at you without blinking for about 40 seconds, but... I'm willing to bet on Zach Cranky if only because of how smart he is and because he's already proven he doesn't need velocity to succeed. I think the question with Cranky is less about success and more is about staying healthy because again, that's the other side of being 37 years old and a major league baseball player is your body's just not going to bounce back as quickly as it did when you were 27. So, and then I guess the other side of that is this Astros rotation it's not a bad rotation, honestly. I was I was a little surprised when I looked at it. I hadn't really paid attention to the Astros much at all, but when I looked at it for the first time the other day, it's actually a pretty solid rotation with a fair amount of upside. I mean, some of that is is what we've seen out of Fran Valdez. Some of that is uh, ideally a health, fully healthy season of Lance McCullers. I think Jose Urquidy and Christian Javier have some upside, and definitely they've got a lot of pitchers in the minors who, if things go sour, you know they can they can turn to and see if they can catch some lightning in a bottle. Um, but really, with like, Granky is kind of the rock there because he's, he's the guy you expect to throw the most innings and be the kind of and be the number one. And maybe 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 this year is ceding that role to Valdez or McCullers so they can pull it together. But if nothing else, a, an ineffective Granky or an injured Granky means a lot more stress on the rest of the rotation to fill in because again, he's guaranteed innings, you know. And this is a, other other than him, everyone else in this everyone else in that rotation. 27, 27, 25, 24. You know, there's not a whole lot of experience, not a whole lot of guys you can really count on, especially McCullers is, is kind of a perpetual injury risk. You know, you need a healthy Granky if you're the Astros if you want to stay in, especially because there's virtually zero chance you get Justin Verlander back this year, barring some absolute miracle. Yeah. Um, last thing on the on the Astros, John. Um, how is their farm system looking? As the team that just has built this incredible farm system, built all these guys up, where where do they stand right now, and is the pipeline starting to go the opposite way? I don't think it's... I mean, it's definitely not as strong as it once was, but that's because they've just graduated so many... Like, Kyle Tucker, I think, was really the last, like, big-name prospect they've graduated, and that was uh, last year, based about 18 months ago. Um Part of the problem is that Forrest Whitley has just stalled out viciously. I mean, I don't know what's going on there, but between injuries, suspensions, like um, ineffectiveness, like he, his star is dimmed quite a bit, even though the tools are all still there. I think you look at that farm system, you're, you're not seeing as many kind of top-tier high-end guys the way it was when they had Bregman and Correa and Jordan Alvarez and Tucker and, and you know, on and on and on and on. 
But I think you're seeing a lot more guys who would be kind of classified under that, like, organizational, like, complement type role. The guys who have, uh, using fan, using, uh, the fangrass system of future value, who are kind of 40 plus guys. You know, they're, they're not stars. Maybe they top out as role players, but they're mostly kind of, I don't, roster filler is not fair, but it's like, it's a farm system that right now, I would imagine one has a lot of guys who are kind of, you know, their their top end is not like all-star material. Two, it's a lot of guys who are a little further away from the majors at this point. Like I said, their top position player is Freudus Nova, and he's not gotten above A-ball. Um, Whitley obviously has had his, his issues. It, it's a pitching-heavy uh, farm system right now, too. Um, you just you, you just scroll through, and you like guys like Brian Abreu, Brandon Bielak, Whitley, like I already mentioned, uh, Luis Garcia, Tyler Ivy, you know, all on the pitching side of things. Whereas position player wise, beyond Nova, you know, you're, you're looking at younger guys like uh, you know Jordan Brewer, Colin Barber, who are a few years away. Um, I guess Jeremy Pena is there, and maybe depending how he how he looks, maybe that's the guy where if Altuve struggles, um, he could get a look. Uh, the other guy, Corey Lee, their first rounder in 2019, has not gone above advanced A ball. You know, that's another guy who is kind of maybe a couple years down the road. I think the impact pieces in that system, minus potentially Whitley, Abreu, and Bielak, are guys you're probably not going to see for a couple years. And so I think that farm system is in this transitory period. Cause it's not only the graduations, they've traded away a lot of prospects, too. Obviously, Verlander costs them prospects, Granke costs them prospects. Um, I believe that's the majority of it, but Ryan Presley cost them prospects. You know, Roberto Osuna cost them whatever he cost them. I actually don't remember what that trade was for. But, you know, the farm system is thinned out, and I think we're kind of in that little kind of, it looks like what maybe a year or two-year-long kind of semi-fallow period where you're just kind of waiting for that next wave of prospects to come up. So I think for the Astros, and and I think that makes these next two years that much more important, this is kind of it for this team as far as this current core goes, um, especially because Perea is going to be a free agent next year. Bregman is, I know Bregman signed his extension, but you know, they're possibly going to lose Correa. These are, these are the last two years of Yuli Gurriel that they were going to have, I believe um, as, as noted out two already getting, is obviously getting older. Granke is getting older. Verlander is going to miss this entire season with Tommy John and kind of come back next year at the age of 39. You know, there's, um, McCullers is going to be hitting free agency after this year. You know, this, this core is, and as we already saw with, with George Springer walking, this core is, is starting to come apart. And they don't really have the prospects in the farm system to kind of keep it going for now. So I think this is going to be a transitory period for the Astros. But this is this year and next year probably it for this particular group. And then we're going to see what comes after that. What will be interesting to me, and obviously this is a question for next winter, is whether or not they target keeping Correa. Because as I noted, there's not really, barring a big jump, from either Jeremy Pena or Freudus Nova, Correa is probably the best option they have at shortstop, but that's also going to depend, too, on what happens with Altuve and if they need to replace him. And certainly next winter is also going to be a crazy market for, for shortstops, you know, not just Correa, uh, but also Corey Seager, uh, Marcus Semien will be back on the market. I know there, there are other guys I'm probably forgetting, obviously, but, you know, it's, it's coming. Like, you know, the, the, the end of this Astros team is coming at some point. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that how they use that farm system to kind of fill those holes, kind of once that happens. Yeah, we shall see. We shall see. Do you think they are a playoff team next year, John? Uh, for twenty twenty one? Yes, absolutely. I think I think there's a division favorite right now. Um, oh, division like favorite. Okay. 
I think so. I don't. It's just the, the as we noted last week, the A's are just going backwards, and I don't think the Angels are strong enough to kind of make up that gap. I mean, I know again, I noted we have our playoff odds up on Fangraphs. They seem to be a little wonky right now, but they've got the Astro. We've got the Astros projected to go eighty-nine and seventy-three, with a sixty-point-seven percent chance to win the division. I I think that's probably a little high on the projected wins. I don't really see the Astros being a better team than, for example, the Twins or the White Sox or or the or you know a couple other squads. But I do think they're probably the best team in that division right now, barring the Angels doing so. I think if the Angels have signed Bauer, then there's a real conversation there. But for as it stands right now, I don't like the Angels, and I I, I think we're probably going to do the Angels next week, so we'll get into their particular set of yeah. issues. But. Um, the A's have just gone backwards, and I don't think the Angels have done enough. So I think the Astros, it's partially by default, but also because you look at that roster, it's a good roster. I think the only things I'd be a little concerned about are there's not a whole lot of rotation depth as it currently stands, and the bullpen doesn't really have, beyond Presley, kind of that, you know, they don't really have these uh, these kind of top-flight arms. I like signing Pedro Baez. I actually think that was a decent move, but they're, they're definitely, it's not as strong a bullpen as you would like to see. But regardless, they, they I think, are like, the Braves and that they have a lot of young arms in the minors. So they can just kind of throw in there and be like, okay, if we need relief help, maybe Brian Abreu is that help, you know? And if nothing else, getting a reliever is not the hardest thing to do during the course of a season. So if the bullpen really is their biggest problem, that's a problem you can solve on the fly. So I, I like the Astros. I think they probably, I think they win the West and I think they make the playoffs again as a, as a more legitimate option this time around. Yeah, that's fair. Um, all right, John, that's all I've got. My friend, uh, we can find you on Twitter where you're not tweeting at the moment, taking a much needed break from twitter.com at J.A. Taylor. Uh, we can check you out at fangraphs.com. And if you are not supporting fangraphs.com, go subscribe today to a very good baseball blog that you should support. So go do that today, fangraphs.com. Um, follow myself at Chase underscore Thomas and leave the show a five star rating interview. Subscribe Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we'll be back next week with the Angels and. Uh, Perhaps some more brave signing all the good players because who who doesn't love that, folks? Who doesn't love it? Um, John, thank you, as always, for the time, my friend, and we will talk soon. Later, man. All right, we're back on the Chase Songs Podcast, and I am now joined by an NHL just content assassin, Brady Chutendaro. Brady, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. I appreciate the kind words. I'm enjoying the uh, the start of the NHL season. It's been great. So, yeah, I appreciate you uh, bringing me back on the show. Well, I hope you enjoyed it because it's over, Brady. It. Uh, I think we're going to wrap this one up and uh, start try again in a month. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's been rough, man. I like it. I'm not going to lie. It's it's been rough. Yeah. Um, who have you found yourself watching in the last week? Uh, who have you been keeping your eye on lately? Yeah. Um, well, just being based, um, in Canada, obviously I got my eyes on the uh, North division. I think it's a great division. A lot of good rivalries going on and being in Vancouver, been following a lot of what's going on there with the Canucks and their struggles. And, um, as well as, you know, we had the first, uh, first battle of Alberta. So that's always great. I've been watching that. And then over, uh, over in the East, I think there's been some really fun teams to watch and kind of keep, keep an eye on. I think, you know, Boston getting back David Pasternak, I was really interested to see kind of how that would work once he's back in, in the uh, lineup and how he would change that dynamic. And yeah, he, uh, 
you've lived up to the hype for sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because the North Division is just so much better than every other division. It's not even fair. Like, the Rangers are in last, <laughs> yeah. like, as I look, and the Rangers are not a bad team at all. And uh, they're... Right, yeah. It, the North Division is just... Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what you can pull from that. The last place winner in the North Division is like... Huh, it, that's tough. Um, I don't think the Rangers are fans of <laughs> this situation. Um, Tortorella, uh, you're not going to mm-hmm. believe this. In the news, Brady... And he, <laughs> yeah. he said, quote, the last thing I want to do is bench Lane. Um, what what do you make of Tor- Tortorella's latest comments? Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of nuts to think that, you know, uh, with this trade with, you know, Line for Dubois, that Line is benched before, you know, Dubois even makes his debut with the Jets. I mean, it's kind of crazy, like game four or something for Line. I mean, yeah, I think when you listen to Torts, he, he almost makes it seem like because um, people were were thinking like, oh, you know, it's his it was his defensive play on this goal, and then the next shift he just looked like Line didn't uh, tie up his guy. But then Torts was saying it's kind of more than that, and it might be some some off ice stuff. But I mean, it's hard to really read into. I think um, what was interesting was Atkinson, um, Cam Atkinson, after that game and that same kind of press conference said, you know if you're not playing up to standards, you're going to get benched by Torch. That's just, I guess that's just how Torch does it. Um, I don't know if, it, if that's really necessary, especially for a star player who's just kind of getting, um, you know, trying to get comfortable in, in a new, new city. I think that's, I don't know if that's going to work for him. I know it works for some players. I don't know if it's going to work for line. A. So, I mean, it's, it's a rough start. I mean, Lana had two goals the last game, and then he gets benched the next game. So, I mean, I think that's just the way Torch does it, and whether or not that's the right way or the wrong way, I think that's up for debate. For sure, for sure. But I'm um, going to guess it's going to get more tumultuous over there, would be my, would be my guess. Um, Probably. Wayne Simmons Probably. out with broken wrist until mm-hmm. March. How much does this affect the lease in your estimation? I think it has a it has an impact. I don't think it has a massive impact, but it has an impact because you know Wayne Simmons been such a great fit there in, in the early goings. He's been doing a lot, especially on the power play. He's just such a great net front presence. But luckily for the Leafs, I think they got other players that can step up. I think Hyman's a really underrated player that plays um, that can kind of play that role, and they got a couple other guys that are capable of that. So I think at the bottom of the day, the Leafs go through their top end talent um, and their goalie Freddie Freddie Anderson, and you know the depth the depth pieces are nice. But I, I mean I think that how far they go this year is going to be dependent on that top end talent and the goaltending. Absolutely, um, and they're fine. The Leafs are good. I, they'll they'll figure it, out a way. Yeah, the Leafs are much. fine. This is a different situation for them. Um, the piece on NH, on uh, ESPN.com about goalie struggling yeah. in 2021 I thought was interesting was this something that you mm-hmm. had expected maybe becoming a thing to start this year because of the weirdness and just what's going on with this season and what happened last season that goalies were the most likely of any position to go through a, a tough period yeah I mean I I, w- I was interested. I, I thought it was an interesting piece as well because when I was coming into this season, I thought um, a lot of these top goalies would would actually benefit as the season wore on, just because of you know the back to backs. That means 
there's going to be more um, emphasis on the uh, backup goalie, and then the starter can maybe get more rest and not be as fatigued as the season wore on. But I think it does make a lot of sense when you kind of look at uh, and you read through that article and see what they're talking about, preparation and and that aspect of it, especially for a goalie. I mean, just not getting that, that type of preparation and practice that you need to, I think, perform at your best. And it's it's showing the results in the early going. Um, I think although some of these goalies can see their numbers increase as the season wars on and they kind of get more comfortable. But it's definitely evident, I think, especially, you know, you look at a guy like Connor Hellebuck, like the last, last season's Vesna winner, he just hasn't been at that level. And I think he'll get there, but I think it's definitely something, it's definitely a conversation worth having here with these unique kind of COVID protocols and all that. Absolutely. Um, Austin Matthews, first Leaf to score <laughs> in eight straight games. Oh, yeah. What do, you, what do you make of this hot streak from Matthews and what it means for him and uh, the Leafs going forward? Yeah, he's just unreal. Like he's he's so fun to watch, um, and I think you know that's huge for for Toronto. I mean, I I know we've seen it a lot with Matthews ever since he entered the league. He's got you know this elite level goal scoring ability, and he's probably going to win you know the Rocket Richard this year and all that. Um, but I think what it, what it's going to come down to is is can he get it done in the playoffs? Um, that's basically I think going to be the conversation around Toronto is like. Yeah, we know they're, you know, this great regular season team. Um, you know, is this the year they can finally get over that hump? And I think, you know, with the way Matthews and Marner are playing right now, like, I, I think they have a, a good shot of going far. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I think uh, I think they do, too. Um, the big three questions I have for you today, Brady. Um, yeah. When you watch the Leafs this season, you look at the roster, you look at how Matthews is playing, you look at Martin. Uh, you look at this group that Cadiz has assembled. Um, do you think they are for real this time, and they are a team that could, that should be able to handle the Bruins, the Lightnings of the world? Yeah, I think you know the more I watch them, the more I, I'm buying in on this team, on this group. Um, I really like. I did like, you know, Simmons. Simmons uh, will come back at some point, so um, that is a loss, but. I think what it comes down to is I think they're really going to benefit from this North division because going back even over the last few years, they just performed really well against Canadian teams and it's, it's showing up again. So with the way this whole playoff structure is set up, I think they have a great chance of getting to that final four and, you know, they're going to avoid the likes of those, you know, the Bruins and stuff in the early going to the playoffs and maybe they can find their game, get their confidence and I do think they're for real. I'm also big on the Habs. I think they have a great roster as well. So I think two kind of Canadian powerhouses here clashing. But uh, I do think the Leafs are for real this year. I think so, too. I think so, too. Um, the Canucks, the team you're most familiar with. We have to talk about them. They've lost five yeah. straight. Um, things are bad. <laughs> what is plaguing the Canucks this season, and especially during this big skid for them? Yeah, it's going really bad. It's going out of control. But um, I think what's what's plaguing them is obviously they had some tough off-season losses. Um, you know, losing Markstrom, losing Toffoli, losing Tanev, and it's just the effort hasn't been there. And I think that's what probably hurts the fans the most. Is you know, it's a tough division, as as you know, you've mentioned and we've talked about. It's it's a really hard division, but 
I think the fans, they just want to see the effort there. You know, they, they know they have the top end talent with guys like Peterson and Hughes and stuff. Um, and they just haven't looked like, you know, that they really want to win in some of these games. And I think we saw a much better effort, um, you know, last night in that final three game setting against the Leafs. But unfortunately, they just didn't get the results. And, you know, that was a bit of, you know, a little bit of goaltending as well as, you know, Freddie outplayed Braden Holpe. Um, but what it boils down to is last year, the Canucks, um, they were bailed out by Jacob Markson. They were not a good defensive team. This year, they're not a good defensive team, and they don't really have, you know, Jake, uh, Jacob Markson to bail them out. Um, so the season's slipping away from them. And I think what's also important is just the fact that in this North Division, the only, like, team they can really beat up on is Ottawa. Like, this is completely different than a normal schedule where you can kind of, like, you know, beat up on some inferior competition to get your confidence back as you kind of travel around. But when you're seeing all these, you know, teams that are like, you know, you got McDavid, Matthews, and all this talent. I mean, it's tough, and I think, you know, they're they're in trouble for sure. Do you think it ultimately turns around for them? Uh, well, I'm going to stick by, like, my, in my preseason prediction, I had them on the outside. Um, so I think it'll, I think they can turn it around to some extent, but I still think they're going to miss the postseason just based on the teams that are in this division. Um, so I think they'll turn it around to some extent. I think guys like Peterson, uh, you know, Besser, Horvat are just, they're too good to just, you know, keep losing like this, but I do think they're going to be just short of the playoffs this season. Interesting. Um, last thing, uh, the Blue Jackets, they have a minus six goal differential, but they're still in second place. Um, do you think yeah. do you think we're in for a Blue Jackets free fall? Uh, it's possible when you look at the at that division because you've got at least heading into the year you would you would think you would pencil in Tampa, Carolina, Dallas um, for those for those three um, tough spots, and then I actually had I think Columbus getting into the playoffs in that fourth spot and. Yeah, that goal differential. I mean, it's what's interesting is just going to be how, you know, this Patrick Line thing unfolds because he's an unreal talent. And I do like their goaltending a lot. I think Corpus Allo is a tremendous talent. And they've got, you know, some good guys on the blue line with with, with Jones and uh, Wierenski. So, I mean, I like the, the Blue Jackets roster. I like the Domi edition. I think Line could be huge for them. Um, so I think they're in line for some regression, given that, you know, they're the only team currently in a playoff spot in, in that central division with a minus goal differential. But I still think they have a chance of, of getting that final spot and, and making the playoffs this season. Interesting. Um, all right, Brady. Well, that's all I've got today. What can we check out from you this week online? Yeah, I'll give a plug to some of the... I'm doing a lot of sports betting stuff at, at sportsbettingdime.com. So if you want to go there, um, head on over to the NHL stuff. The NHL section, you'll see some of my work uh, on there. So sportsbettingdime.com. All right, go do that. Brady, keep up the great work, sir. And uh, we'll check back in again soon. Yep, thanks again, Chase, for having me on. All right, we're back on the Chase House Podcast, and I am now joined by Vince 
Mercogliano, I hope I nailed that. I went really slow. I looked at it again, but uh, Vince, good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. You, you you did pretty good there, Chase. I've heard much worse, so that wasn't that wasn't bad. At all. <laughs> all right, I'll take it. I'll take it. As long as I'm not the worst, then that's all. That that is all you can do. Um, you covered the New York Rangers, a hockey team that I am very fascinated about right now because um, there's a lot of stuff going on on the court now with D'Angelo, off the ice with D'Angelo. Um, what is uh what is the latest on everything with Tony D'Angelo? Oh well, there's there's so much we can go into. I mean, obviously, the we could talk if you want quite a bit about what led up to the Rangers deciding to move on from him. There, there's quite a bit that that went into that. With the final straw being, I guess it's all blur now, but I guess it's like ten days or so ago when he got into a little bit of a post game scrap with a teammate. But that was that was kind of the final straw. That was the boiling point, if you will. There was a lot of stuff that had been going on for close to a year before that that led to a lot of frustration from the Rangers, and they ultimately decided to waive him just six games into a brand new contract that they had given him in October, which is a pretty wild thing in and of itself. And then the latest is that they are exploring trade possibilities, but it is, it is tough sledding. As far as I know, I wrote a story last week that they had been feeling out the Calgary flames because the Calgary flames also have a player on their team, much different circumstances, but they have a player uh, center named Sam Bennett who is unhappy there, has requested a trade. So it's kind of different from D'Angelo. The Rangers are trying to get D'Angelo out of there, whereas the Flames are dealing with a player who wants out on his own accord. But uh, the Rangers, for them, center is a position of need. Bennett is an intriguing player. I have confirmed with a few sources from the Rangers that they have had that conversation. They are, in fact, interested in Bennett. The question is, are the Flames interested in D'Angelo? And that is harder to tell. Uh, Any team that wanted D'Angelo could have claimed him when the way when the rangers put him on waivers uh, a little over a week ago uh, about 10 days ago now and every team in the league declined to do so part of the reason for that is because if they were to claim him on waivers they would have had to assume his entire contract which is an average annual value hit of 4.8 for million for this season and again 4.8 million for next season a lot of teams would have a tough time affording that so that was part of the reason why he cleared waivers but the bigger reason is that he is considered somewhat of a problem, somewhat of a concern, definitely a PR concern, given some of the issues that he had with the Rangers in the last year or so. So I, I think the Rangers are finding that it is not going to be very easy to trade him. I think they knew that even before they waived him. Uh, they had explored some things in the offseason before they decided to re-sign him to that deal that I mentioned in October and they were not finding a lot of interested parties. And now with all the stuff that's swirling around them, it's even more difficult for them to find a trading partner. So ultimately, if they don't find a deal that they like, and what I've been told by sources from the Rangers and outside of the Rangers is that basically teams are saying to them, the only way we're willing to take a risk on this guy is if the Rangers accept a bad contract, an unwanted player in return, which the Rangers are reluctant to do, understandably. So the Rangers' fallback option, if they can't find a trade for D'Angelo, is that if they wait until the summer after the season concludes, they would have the option to buy him out, uh, which is sort of like cutting him. And in that situation, the Rangers would have to pay penalties for the next two seasons. But the penalties are very minor because D'Angelo is still a young player. 
they would only be charged under 400000 against their salary cap for next season and under 900000 for their salary cap the season after. The Rangers have bought other players out in the past who they had to pay much higher penalties for. So this seems like a very reasonable, manageable situation if they go that route. And I'm starting to lean more and more. My initial thought was that I thought that would be the direction that they were going in. Then you were hearing rumors that they were talking trade and this and that. Uh, But I always kind of had my doubts. And now the longer this drags on, the more I think it's becoming clear that they are not having a lot of luck in terms of finding a new team for him right now. Do you think they've handled that was kind of a long winded that was kind of a long winded thing, but I like I said, there's a lot of layers to this. So Absolutely, absolutely. Do you think they handled this the best they could have? Um well it, it depends if you're talking about right now or in the past. Right so now. If you want to go right now, yeah. I I actually do think that for the most part this was a pretty I don't want to say a bold move on their part, but to basically tell a player to go home six days, six games into a new contract, uh, and in, in doing so, even though I was saying that he didn't seem to have much trade value before, they were absolutely crushing his trade value now. So they basically took a principled stand by saying, we don't want you around the team right now. We're not going to try to put on a facade that, you know, makes it look to other teams at least like things are hunky-dory and fine around here. Uh, they they sent him home, and they could have tried to keep it quiet. They could have tried to keep playing him and, and in the meantime work on a trade behind the scenes without having this big public spectacle around the whole thing. Uh, so I do think that they acted pretty swiftly here. But if you want to go back in the past, I mean, you could definitely make a case that trading for him was a risk they shouldn't have taken given his, given his history. And, I mean, we can outline the history if you want. He was known as a guy who had immaturity issues, a guy who had behavioral issues. If you go back to his time in the Ontario Hockey League when he was a teenager, a junior player, even before he got drafted, uh, he was suspended multiple times for violating the league's uh, harassment, diversity, abuse policy. Exactly what he said in those situations, my understanding is that one time it was something he said to a referee, Another time, it was something that he said to another player. Uh, we don't know exactly what he said. I've heard homophobic. I've heard racial. I've heard all kinds of different rumors, but it's all sort of unconfirmed. We, but we, what we do know is that he said something that got him in trouble, that got him suspended for multiple games on two different occasions as a junior league player, and that once he came into the NHL or was drafted to the NHL, there were character questions surrounding him. The Rangers acquired him from the Arizona Coyotes in 2017, knowing that all this had happened. It was they admittedly took a roll of the dice, hoping that you know it was teenage immaturity and that he had grown from it and that they could mold him into a better player. Uh, and, and you know this is not uncommon in sports. Uh, I talked about this on my own podcast last week. Unfortunately, when you're a talented player, you usually get second, third, fourth chances, and that's kind of what happened with D'Angelo. Uh, And then, you know, for a period of time, the Rangers did feel like he was on his best behavior. He had a a great season for them last year. And by all accounts, I mean, last year I was actually able to be in the locker room and kind of see him interacting with teammates and all that. And he was this loud, you know, guy who got a lot of laughs from his teammates, I think was, was mostly pretty well accepted, definitely had some close friends on the team, was very productive on the ice and had kind of stayed out of trouble for a, a, a decent period of time at that point, which led to the Rangers giving him that contract in October. 
But when they gave him the contract in October, there were signs of the immaturity issues creeping up again, in particular when it came to his social media use. Once the pandemic hit in March, D'Angelo was, again, very active on social media. That has been his pattern throughout his time as a pro, that he admittedly, I've, I've, I've talked to him about this quite a few times in the past, is a guy who scrolls Twitter quite a bit, throws his own opinions out there quite a bit, and is not afraid to antagonize fans. If he sees people that are being critical of him, he'll snap back at them. That's something I think a lot of athletes try to avoid because it's kind of a slippery slope. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, and again, it shows his immaturity. Uh, and once the pandemic hit, he was not only doing that sort of thing. He got in trouble over the summer because he was basically challenging a fan to meet him outside of Madison Square Garden for a fist fight. And the Rangers, I know, took issue with that and scolded him about that. Uh, but he also was diving into the political world a lot. And I know the Rangers didn't take issue with him expressing political opinions necessarily, but it, it, it obviously rubbed a lot of fans the wrong way and made him a very polarizing figure. And then where he really, I think, made one of his biggest mistakes was in November, after he had signed that contract, uh, he put out a tweet that was basically mocking the fact that, that because the election was going on, people weren't talking about COVID anymore. And I mean, that was a really egregious error when you're you know, representing a city that has been devastated by the virus. So there were clear signs of the immaturity that had been creeping up. Uh, and the Rangers still decided to sign him to the contract. So the decision to sign him in October, I think very much was a questionable decision. But I do think that he had a lot of stuff going on around in January, which we can dive into as well. And that I was really surprised that they so quickly into that new contract, rather than trying to make it work, uh, made the decision to just move on. Interesting. Well, speaking of extensions, uh, what do you think of Pavel's uh, upcoming extension? Do you think that's coming up very quickly? I'm sorry, extension for who? Uh, Pavel. Oh, Buchnevich. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, Buch, is, Buch has been one of their best players this year for sure. I, I know that the Rangers feel like he has really rounded out his game. He was always a guy that had a reputation as an offensive player, but he's been used on the penalty kill this year. He's been much better defensively the last two years. He's, he's kind of a guy that has shown a willingness to mix it up physically a little bit more than he had when he first came into the league, and he does still have those dynamic offensive skills. So he's their second-leading scorer right now. He's having a really good year. I think that he's positioning himself to stay in New York. There are questions about that coming into the season because the Rangers are such a young team with so many talented young wingers in particular. So there was this thought of, does it make sense to give him a long-term contract when you have all these other young kids coming up behind him that might eventually be able to replace him? Uh, you know, a lot of them in the near future. So I think it's an interesting situation the Rangers find themselves in because he's clearly become more and more valuable for them with, with each passing year, but they also have all these young guys coming and all these young guys that they're eventually going to have to also figure out a way to pay. So do they want to commit to him? And if so, how long are they willing to do it for? What does that price tag look like? Especially given the fact that the NHL is dealing with a flat salary cap for the next few years. So Booch is a really interesting case, but I do feel like right now the Rangers are very happy with the way he's playing and would ideally like to find a way to keep him around for a little while longer. Chris Jury getting promoted. Uh, do you do you like the move? 
it's you know it, it it's kind of one of those moves that I think is more of not for show, but it, it's sort of it's sort of just them showing their commitment to him. It doesn't change his day to day responsibilities, as far as I know. He was mm. the uh, assistant. He was the assistant GM before this. Now they're calling him the associate GM. Mm-hmm. It was really just associate a, to the it, general it manager. Really, um, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so he's he's still number two in charge to Jeff Gordon, who's the general mm. manager. Uh, this doesn't necessarily make them like a one A one B thing. Um, but with that being said, a lot of teams have expressed interest in Drury to to become a general manager for them. He most recently had uh, been in talks a little bit with the Pittsburgh Penguins for their opening. And my understanding is that Drury did not want to leave New York. His fa- he's, he's a Connecticut guy, uh, born and raised. His family is pretty well established there. He's got young kids. Uh, and he's very happy in New York. And the Rangers have, in the last few years, involved him very much so in the major decisions. And he is definitely working hand-in-hand with Gordon on a lot of the stuff that they do. So his role has kind of evolved naturally, organically over the years. I think this title was just a way of saying, hey, listen, we want you to stay. You want to stay. We want to kind of show our commitment to you in a, in a public fashion here. Um, sure, it probably comes with maybe a little bit of a raise or something along those lines. Uh, and Gordon is still a young guy. He's in his early 50s, so I don't necessarily think he's going anywhere anytime soon. But this does position Drury to eventually maybe assume that role should have become open. He's clearly the heir apparent would clearly be the choice for the Rangers if that GM role ever were to come open. But I think this is more of just a, just a way of saying, you know, he doesn't want to go anywhere. We want him here. He's a big part of this organization. And, and so we're going to kind of change his title to show everyone that. Interesting. Um, in your estimation, what would you say has gone right for the Rangers this year? And what has really gone wrong for them that you may not have expected? Well, I I think one of the things that has gone right, probably the biggest thing for me so far, is that all of the questions, or a lot of the questions, I should say, coming into the season were, the Rangers were a team last year that had a lot of skill, a lot of offense, dynamic players like Artemi Panarin, Mika Zabinijad, they draft young guys like Capo Caco and Alexi Lafreniere. So people felt like this was a team that would definitely be able to put up points and the goaltending was considered exciting because of the young tandem of Igor Shosturkin and Alex Georgiev. So offensively and goaltending, the Rangers were, were thought to be in pretty good shape. The big question was their defense. Last season, the Rangers averaged 34 shots allowed per game, which was the second worst number in the NHL. They really had some games where they just looked atrocious defensively. They bleed scoring chances. That was their biggest issue last season was that they they did they were not tight enough. They were not structured enough. They made too many crucial mistakes with the puck that put them in vulnerable positions defensively. And they were kind of facing those questions coming into the season. This year, that has been dramatically improved. If you, if you look at the way the Rangers are defending right now, their shots against are way down. It's like 27 a game as opposed to 34 a game last season. They are not bleeding those chances the way that we saw them last season they have kept themselves in pretty much every game that they've played because they haven't had many stinkers where they're allowing you know a a a crooked number of goals or anything like that and and you've seen young defensemen like adam fox keandre miller really really step up 
and and take on bigger roles this season and excel in a lot of ways in those bigger roles. So I think the way the Rangers are defending as a team is a big positive for them, and, and that really answered the biggest question that they had coming into the season. But on the other hand, things that have kind of been surprising in a negative way are their key players from last year, and the number one culprit right now is Mika Zibanejad, have not produced at the rate that we were accustomed to last season. Nico was the most efficient goal scorer in the league last year. He had 41 goals in like 50-something games, a, a ridiculous number. He was on fire at the end of the season, including that five-goal game that he had against the Capitals right before the pandemic hit. So he was the guy that the Rangers were looking at as like an established superstar. And now here we are 11 games in, into the new season. He only has one goal. He only has one point in his last eight games. He's really slumping. And I think it needs to be noted that he was a guy that had COVID during the preseason. He missed most of training camp for that reason. I was pretty surprised that after like one or two practices, he was able to play on opening night. And, I, you know, he won't admit it. I've asked him this a few times uh, if COVID has had any lingering effects on his game. He's a no excuses kind of guy. I'm not surprised that he wouldn't use that as an excuse. But you have to wonder if that's hindering him at all. And, and his top line that was the Rangers' best line for the most part last season with him, Chris Kreider, and Booch. Booch is the only guy who's really playing well right now. Kreider and Mika are off to kind of slow starts, and the Rangers aren't getting the production that they anticipated from that line. So I think the Rangers, it's funny how we talked about the beginning of the season, the offense was kind of a sure thing, the defense was a question mark. It's been a little bit of the opposite now. The defense has been pretty solid. The offense has been inconsistent. They got shut out by the Islanders last night. So I think that the Rangers moving forward want to see some of those guys that were big producers for them last year, like a Zabinijad, uh, get back on track. And if they do that and they keep playing defense the way they are, you feel like even though they're in what I think many people would consider to be the toughest division in the league, that at least they'll, they'll be able to keep themselves in most games, have a chance most games. And for a young team like this, that's really all you could ask for. Fair, fair. Um, your favorite storyline that you've been monitoring this year? Hmm, interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the interest with this team is the young guys. There's just so many guys that are, you know, like Kako and Lafreniere are teenagers still. There's so many other guys that are in their early 20s. Monitoring the development of those guys to me is the most interesting thing around this team. You know, people feel like they're talented enough to compete right now, but I mentioned how tough the division is. The feeling is that they are still a year or two away from really having their window to contend for a Stanley Cup pop open. So you want to see what the process looks like in the meantime. How are they developing? Are they taking the right steps to be able to become the Stanley Cup contending team that they hope to be in a couple of years? And as far as the young guys go, the player to me that has been probably the best story so far this season is Keandre Miller. He's a guy who he just turned 22, only played two years of college hockey. There were a lot of questions about how ready he was for the NHL. I know that the Rangers had told me months before the season that they thought there was a good chance that he would need to start out in the minors in the American Hockey League to kind of get his feet wet, get used to pro hockey, and sort of work his way slowly to becoming an NHL player. But they put him right in the lineup from opening night. He's been one of their top four defensemen. His usage has been increasing steadily throughout the season so far. And he has, you know, he's made a few mistakes here and there. His opening night performance was a little shaky, but he has largely been a huge plus for the Rangers. 
His talent is is obvious. He's six foot five, chiseled, skates extremely well. His reach with his stick is incredible. His skill with the puck is is really noteworthy. He's got a big, big slap shot. One, you know, he looks like he could be one of those defensemen that every time he gets the puck up near the blue line is feared for his for his ability to put it on the net. He's just got so much skill and talent, and it really seems to be translating quickly. I, I actually asked him this a few weeks ago, just asking. You know, he he looks like he's having even more of an easy transition with the NHL than he did when he was in college. And I asked him if he feels like the NHL game is just well-suited for a player of his skill set. You know, he kind of downplayed it a little bit, but it really does. he really is in a lot of ways making it look seamless, making it look kind of easy. I'm sure there will be hiccups and bumps along the road, but he looks like a keeper for the Rangers, and he's really solidified their defensive core so far. So he, to me, out of all the young guys, and obviously Lafreniere, because he was the number one pick, was the big story to begin the season. And he's only he only has one goal so far. He is not, you know, putting up points the way that I know he would like to so far. But Miller, meanwhile, has just he's been the biggest standout among the rookies right now. Interesting. Um, last thing, and then you have to go. Um, how long do you think this rebuild is going to go before the Rangers are officially back in contention? You know. I think you could argue that their window might open as soon as next season. If these young players like Miller continue to, to get to the league and perform well right away, if guys like Lafreniere and Kako continue to take positive steps, you know, this is a big year for both of those guys. Kako, I think has definitely shown some improvement and Lafreniere was considered the best forward prospect to come into the draft in three years. If you see that emerge over the course of this season and then he's ready to go into next season with a lot of confidence, the Rangers also, it should be noted, should have a little bit of salary cap room freeing up this offseason. Guys like Brendan Smith come off the books. Some of their buyout penalties from previous buyouts like Henrik Lundqvist will, will go down a bit. So they will have a little bit of money to spend if they need to add in a key area like, for example, center. I definitely think the Rangers, with all the assets they've accumulated in the last few years and all the prospects they've accumulated, will be in the market to maybe pursue a trade to help them solidify that center position, which is probably their biggest long-term need. So if they can make a move like that this offseason and the young kids keep developing, you know, you could argue that they could be a contending team next season. They were on the verge of making the playoffs last year before the pandemic hit. We'll see how this season plays out. That division is so tough. I think it's going to be really difficult for them to make the playoffs, but they are a team with the talent to do so. So if you continue to see these positive steps that we've seen in the last two years, I think next year, you know, maybe not a Stanley Cup type team, but I think next year they could definitely be a playoff team. And then, you know, as guys like Kako and Lafreniere go from 19-year-olds to 20, 21, 22-year-olds, you know, those guys have huge upside. So if you continue to see the growth from the young players and they add a piece here or there in the key spots, then I definitely think a year or two away is when you would say their their window to contend really would open. Interesting. All right, man. Well, this has been great. Vince, what can we check out from you this week at Low Hud? Oh, a lot of stuff. I'm about to cover practice today, and obviously I have at least one or two stories going up on lowhud.com slash sports slash rangers every day. Got a new podcast, New Ice City coming out on Wednesday morning this week and you can also find me on Twitter at VZ Mercagliano alright go do that thank you so much for making the time man this has been great I appreciate it and uh, stay safe out there cool thanks Jay.
Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.